Good morning, everyone. <clears throat> Happy Valentine's Day. It's my Valentine's Day song. It's springtime, the season for love and romance. Men and women come together to join in the dance. Holding hands and giving kisses and sharing their vows of love toward each other. But I wonder if there's love for me. But I look in the word and read of God's own love for me. Where he gave his own son to suffer and die for me. His enemy that we love. And I know that there's love for me. It's plain to see at the cross. All around me, lonely people are searching for love. Never knowing something greater has come from above. To give them comfort, feel the hole in all of their hearts. A hole only God could fill, and I want them to know of it. the word and read of God's own love for them where he gave his own son to suffer and die for them his enemies that's real love and I know that there's love for them it's plain to see at the cross You're lonely, feel forsaken, and filled with despair. Listen to me when I tell you there's one who does care. The God of heaven who created you and this world has sent his one and only son to show you what love is about. So look in the word and read of God's own love for you Where he gave his own son to suffer and die for you His enemy, that's real love Do you know that there's love for you? It's plain to see at the cross love for those who haven't a friend oh there is love for those whose heart has been broke oh there is love for those who feel they're left out oh there is love for you 
wait to let me hang it up my guitar and I'll be right back. All right, I'm back, my children. How you doing? Good morning again to all of you. Could you turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1? We began our verse-by-verse study of Ephesians uh, on uh, this past Saturday, and we looked at the uh, identification of the author of this letter in verse 1, and then today we'll be looking finish off, finishing off the verse by noting the identification of the recipients of this abyssal, which is kind of tricky, as I pointed out in the introduction, which was an eight-hour introduction. So we talked about who the recipients and the authors, author were, uh, author was in the, of this book. So uh, we'll uh, look at that in a little greater detail today. And, uh, and so uh, that that last song, I know today is Valentine's Day, and some people get all all upset, and because if they're single, divorced, and an unhappy marriage or whatnot, they they those days like Christmas can get, cause people to be really depressed and. Uh, I remember when, um, uh, way back when I wrote this song, I was basically, um, basically trying to talk myself with the word of God out of being depressed, not being married, you know, and, uh, so most of you know, I'm not married and single and I uh, don't have any kids or anything like that. So, um, that's why I don't have any wrinkles. <laughs> well, not bad. I mean, it's for 61. So, uh. And that's not this is not plastic surgery, okay? I'm not, you know. <laughs> so uh, you probably say I probably need it, right? <laughs> so, anyways, I'm, I'm, this is back in oh, I don't know 2008. I mean, I think I wrote the song. I don't know 2000, somewhere around there. And uh, so I was writing this song, you know, about for myself. And uh, but I also at the same time, you listen, to, look at the lyrics. It's like uh, a lot of it's just trying to help people to basically do what I did is basically, hey, real love is, you know, I mean, I mean, human love is a great gift and if you're, you know, if God is so giving you a, a, a husband or wife, whatever, that's great, you know, and that's that's fantastic. It's a blessing from God. It's, it's one of those established, uh, one of those uh, things that God has established for the entire human race, not just Christians. So, it's a great thing and, uh, but, um, you know, it's nothing wrong being single and, uh, you know, we live in a culture where, you know, even all around the world, you know, being single, you know, people think there's something wrong with you or like if you're, if you're a guy, you know, or, or, or maybe he's gay or something, you know, cause he's not married, you know, that's the way people think today, you know? And, uh, so it doesn't really matter what people think, but, uh, you know, so as a Christian, you know, if, you know, if you look at, I look at, uh, you know, looking back retrospectively, you know, I could see the wisdom of God, obviously that, that happens all the time. Right. Whereas, like, I mean, I said this before, like, you know, Jim Ricard, who's married and has kids, and he would say, 
you know, while I'm dealing with my kids and pro, you know, deal issues with husbands, with my, my wife or my kids or my grandchildren. Now he has grandchildren. He has to babysit from, from time to time. And uh, so, you know, while you're doing that, uh, while I'm doing that, you're, you're, st you're studying or praying, you know. <laughs> I said, yeah, that's right. You know, so people say a lot of times when people go, how in the world did you, you know, they look at all this material. They hide you. I said, well, I said, first, first and foremost, I'm single, not married, don't have any kids. There you go. So I'm able to devote myself to the work of the Lord. So basically that's what I say to the, you know, to uh, people who are not married or, um, you know, be fallen, you know, get, just get into the word of God and get, fall in love with the God who, you know, created everything and saved you. And there's no better person to, uh, you know, fall in love with. And, um, you know, and, and if you're in a, in a lousy marriage or, you know, it's like, Hey, you know, it's, that's the, unfortunately that, that happens because, you know, when you, when you marry somebody, you know, you, you don't know how they're going to turn out. They might've turned off. They might've been positive the word of God. Now they're not, you know, but, um, look at, you have to deal with it. That's the way it is. And, you know, pray for the person, do whatever God's word says, put the word of God into practice. Um, maybe through your good behavior, you can lead that person back to repentance and confession of their sin and get back in the plan of God. But if you get bitter toward them, give them a hard time, then, you know, how are you going to lead them back to, you know, being positive of the word of God when you're pushing them away? You're not really demonstrating what a Christian love is toward your spouse. So, so it's difficult. And, uh, you know, when you're single, you know, hey, just take advantage of it. You know, you might not be, if you know, you, God might end up, you know, surprising you and giving you somebody. And then you have kids, the next thing you know, like, oh, I wish I was single again. I have no time for myself. That's, the grass is always greener. So I've learned, I've, I've learned, I've had my battles with God over the years about it. But at the end of the day, I, I've, as the older I've gotten, you know, and now like I'm 61, it's like, hey, thank you, Lord. I, I, I don't need to get married and have kids, you know. And I, I love kids. Everybody knows I love kids. My family does. But, um, and I'm great with kids. Kids love me. And uh, so that's uh, probably because I'm it's a big kid there. <laughs> and uh, so I, I and so I love, you know, it's, uh, but it, I'm going to, I'm, I'm thankful that I was able to do what I've done in life with the Lord. I wouldn't trade it, you know, uh, for anything. So I don't get depressed over it. And don't, you know, get, don't get worked up about it. It's, you know, eventually, you know, we're all going to be back with the Lord and there'd be no marriage anymore, okay? So, and all the things that we thought were so important in this life, uh, in, in perspective, now we'll be looking back on why did I get upset about that, you know? Take, take advantage, wherever you're at, if you're in a lousy marriage or in a good, you know, you're not, you're single or you're married in a good marriage, wherever you're at, just be happy with what you got, you know? Um you know, there's a lot of people who'd love to be married that are not married, and you don't want to be married. You know, there are people who, so, you know, just be thankful for what God gave you. That's, that's really, that the, that song is basically, you fall in love with the Lord, you know, and, uh, and there is somebody who loves you. You know, you might not have the love of a husband or a wife or, or and children, but you have the love of a God whose love is superior than human love. It's really the message of the song, you know, you want, you know that there's love for you, and, uh, and so when you, when I always do is to talk yourself out of depression and, and, and bad days, you know, you just use, talk, you know, biblical meditation we studied, talk yourself out of, with the word of God, talk yourself out of the, uh, the depression. You know, how would you, how would you treat somebody who's going through this? Put yourself, give yourself your own advice. In other words, you know, we try to help other people along, but we don't get, take our own advice, you know? So how would you tell somebody who's in your situation to act and how to think? Okay, from a biblical perspective. So do that for yourself. 
All right, enough of that. Let's uh, take a moment of silent prayer. This is our custom. We take a moment of silent prayer to examine ourselves, determine if we're in, we're in fellowship with God. Because any mental, verbal, or overt act of sin that we knowingly commit will cause us to lose fellowship with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But according to 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins to the Father, He, God the Father, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. In other words, He purifies us from each and every wrongdoing. And we maintain that fellowship by obeying the Holy Spirit who speaks to us through the Scriptures which He's inspired. And that's when we're obeying the commands of Ephesians 5.18 to be filled with the Spirit and Colossians 3.16 to let the Word of Christ richly dwell in our souls. So, if there's anything that's bothering you, disturbing or distracting to you, do what 1 Peter 5.7 says, cast all your anxieties upon the Lord because He cares for you. So with that in mind, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that you've given to us so graciously. We thank you so much, Father, for treating us better than we deserve, giving us the forgiveness of our sins and entering us into an eternal relationship and fellowship with your Son, yourself, and the Holy Spirit. We thank you for the Bible, the completed canon of Scripture, your love letters to us. And I just pray, Father, through this series on Ephesians that the Holy Spirit would use this letter mightily as uh, and use me mightily in communicating its contents to your people, not only the the interpretation of the book, but also the application. I pray, Father, that, uh, thank you, Father, for the technology, people taking advantage of the technology today, and I pray it would function properly, and there'd be no problems with recording the video and the audio and uploading these things to our various websites, podcasts, and media platforms that you've given to us. I pray you use them mightily and protect them from the evil one. And Father, I just thank you for your work on our behalf in eternity past and electing us and predestinating us to be conformed to the image of your Son, I thank you, Father, for the work of your Son in his crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, and session at your right hand. And your word says through the Spirit that uh, he has, through those events in his life, delivered us from eternal condemnation, enslavement to sin and Satan in his cosmic system, spiritual and physical death, personal sins, condemnation from the law. And we thank you for the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, from regeneration to resurrection, and in particular baptism in the Spirit, where your, the Spirit has identified us with your Son, Jesus Christ, in those events in his life, and, uh, and now that through faith, we can appropriate by faith this union identification with your son and experience victory uh, over sin and Satan in his cosmic system. And we know we get that victory in a positional sense at our justification and also in a perfective sense when we're in a resurrection body. Father, we just uh, pray that today that you would help me as the communicator to bring forth your full counsel today to your people. Help me to communicate your word with accuracy and clarity, reverence, respect, and power so that your people can receive their necessary spiritual nourishment. I pray that you would also work mightily and powerfully through your people in the audience, help them to learn, understand what's being taught, to concentrate, and make the proper application. Please break down any barriers that sin and Satan might put up that would hinder that from happening. I also pray, Father, that uh, as a res uh, for our leaders, I pray for President Biden and Vice President Harris, their cabinet, their family, the executive, judicial, legislative branches of our federal, state, local governments, and military I pray, Father, you give our wis the wisdom to our military and political leaders and thank you for them. And I just pray, Father, that you would raise up more people in our government and all levels of our government, federal, state, local levels that have uh, respect for your word, have establishment principles at, th at the minimum. So, Father, we pray for this uh, service and our these people and things and our leaders and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. 
All right, if you haven't turned there already, please go to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. We're continuing our study of the book of Ephesians, our verse-by-verse study, which we began on Saturday. We had an eight-part introduction, and uh, which helped us uh, with the interpretation of this book and understanding some things in this book. And as I said on, uh, before the opening prayer, we, on Saturday, uh, began this verse-by-verse study of Ephesians by noting the first part of the verse, verse 1, First part of that verse, and noting the identification of the author, who we knew was uh, we noted was Paul, the apostle. Uh, his uh, Paul was his Greek name. He used it among the Gentiles because he was an apostle to the Gentiles, as we pointed out. Saul was his Hebrew name, his Jewish name, uh, which he used when he was mingling with his his people. But uh, we saw that because he was an apostle of the Gentiles, this was the name he used when writing. Uh, to these churches that he had established or who was uh, uh, in, the, in, the, in the Roman Empire that were Gentile. Uh, we noted that uh, this was not a pseudonymous letter, on, on, on contrary, to, contrary to what a lot of scholars, biblical scholars, even evangelical scholars believe about this letter. Um, Paul gives his, first of all, the guy who's writing this says, I'm Paul, I'm a prisoner of the Lord which uh, jives with the fact that Paul wrote this from Rome between 60 and 62 AD, which is what the church has always believed throughout its history. Uh, they always believe that Paul wrote this letter. Um, you can look at the early church fathers and the, and the different lists that they have for, canon, uh, for the canon, New Testament canon. Everybody recognized it from the very beginning as Paul. It wasn't until modern times, like in particular uh, the 20th century, really, with Ephesians, that people were questioning the... Uh, the authorship, the Pauline authorship of this letter. The church has never accepted pseudonymous writings. Um, Paul makes that clear in 2 Thessalonians, a book we studied in detail. He was uh, somebody who had come into uh, Thessalonica teaching false doctrine that the day of the Lord had, had begun, the tribulation period, 70th week of Daniel. And he says that's not the case. In fact, he says if anybody sends even a letter, allegedly from us, saying that the day of the Lord has taken place, you ought to reject it. And then at the end of the letter, he gives his authenticating mark. So that would prevent against forgeries. And so he did this with Colossians. At the end of Colossians, was Colossians 4.18, Galatians 6.11. So he was concerned about that. So that means he didn't accept pseudonymity. He rejected it. And the early church did, because he's a leader of the early church. The other thing is we saw in Tertullian, in his work on baptism, there was a man that they had excommunicated, he said, that was posing as Paul in a letter to one of the churches. And uh, he was doing that and uh, he, out of reverence for Paul, was trying to increase Paul's fame, but they still excommunicated him. You, you, they didn't accept pseudonymity. So um, the evidence is decidedly a favor, overwhelmingly in favor of Pauline authorship. And uh, so, uh, you know, contrary to what a lot of modern scholars believe. And uh, so today we're going to be looking at the identification of the recipients of this letter, which I noted in our introduction. One of the hours we studied on the introduction was this, the recipients of this letter. Uh, it's not just, as we pointed out, and we'll reiterate this today, it's not only the Ephesian Christian community that is the recipients of this letter, but uh, also the various churches in the Roman province of Asia. Uh, the various Christian communities throughout the Roman province of Asia, like Laodicea or Pergamum or Smyrna, those seven churches of Asia that we saw in Revelation 2 and 3. So as we point out, this is a circular letter. We'll, we'll, re, we'll reiterate that again here today and present the evidence for that again as we uh, look at the recipients of this letter. So let's look at, uh, I'll be reading from, let's read from the ESV today. I like to read from all the modern translations. I, the three, My three favorite are NIV, 
uh, ESV and the Net Bible. But uh, today we'll read from the um, the ESV, and we're going to read uh, the first uh, fourteen verses, which uh, we have the the uh, salutation in the first two verses, and then we'll have in verses three through. 14 is actually what we call the preface, which is in the form of a doxology, as we'll see when we get to it, which is absolutely brilliant uh, writing by Paul. But uh, So let's look at Ephesians 1.1. 1, 1. It says on the board, and I'm reading again from the ESV, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be thee, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons, through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also... When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who, the promised Holy Spirit, is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire, acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now, uh, if I may, let's read uh, from uh, the Net Bible, the first two verses. From Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The NIV, they say, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then lastly, if I may, my translation of these exact same verses, verses 1 and 2, from Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by God's will, to the saints who are living in Ephesus, specifically to those who are believers in Christ Jesus. And you notice that uh, I have to those who are believers, whereas the other translations I showed you have the faithful. So to those who are believers in Christ Jesus, may the grace originating from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ resulting in peace cause itself to be manifested for the benefit of each and every one of you. So as we noted in Ephesians 1.1, on Saturday, the Apostle Paul presents a twofold description of the recipients of this letter. The first asserts, as we'll see, that they were the saints who were living in Ephesus. And the second identifies specifically who these recipients are, uh, namely that they are believers in Christ Jesus. As I said before, we'll be noting why the, I, my translation is different. Uh, the, the ESV has our faithful, uh, the NIV, the faithful. Uh, and then we have, uh, let's see, um, the faithful by the um, by the Net Bible, so they all have the faithful and the great translations, every single one of them. But I have, as you can see, uh, and I pointed it out to you, those who are believers in Christ Jesus. I'm going to give my reasons why I believe it uh, should be translated that way. Not that these people were faithful, but that they were believers. He's basically this is an epexegetical clause introduced by the conjunction Kai. Kai can act that way sometimes, and basically identifying specifically what a saint is. 
it's someone who's believed in Jesus Christ. So the, we see that the term saints there, let's take a look at that dis- first description of the recipients of this letter. The term hagios is the word translated saints in your Bibles. It describes, this word describes all the members of the body of Christ who have been set apart through the baptism of the Spirit at the moment of justification, conversion, in order to serve God exclusively. That's what sanctification is all about. We're being set, we've been set apart to serve God exclusively. So sanctification means we're set apart to serve God exclusively. And there's a lot of implications there. Now, this particular word, hagios, here, which is translated to the saints, it summarizes, actually, the doctrine of sanctification, a doctrine we studied in the past. We're going to be, at Wednesday Bible Ministries, we'll be studying at Doctrinal Bible Church in the not-too-distant future on Wednesday evening. So this word, saints, it, it summarizes the doctrine of sanctification, and sanctification is actually a technical term, theological term for the believer who's been set apart through the baptism of the Spirit at the moment of conversion or justification. And the purpose of this was to serve God exclusively. And it's accomplished, like our so great salvation, in three stages. One, positional. Two, experiential. And three, perfective. And I'm going to describe each one of those now to you. And I've done this in the past many times. First of all, when I say by positional, I mean that God views us as believers, as crucified, died, buried, raised, and seated with Christ, because at the moment of conversion, the Holy Spirit placed us in union with Christ and identified us with Him in His crucifixion, His death, His burial, His resurrection, and session at the right hand of the Father. We're identified with Christ in His crucifixion. That's taught in Romans 6, 6 and Galatians 2, 20. Uh, in fact, Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So the life I now live in the body, I live because of the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. And so uh, we're also not only identified with Christ in his crucifixion, but also his death. That's according to Romans 6.2 and 7 and 8, as well as Colossians 2.20 and 3.3. We're also identified with him in his burial. Uh, Romans 6, 4, Colossians 2, 12. And also we're identified with him in his resurrection, Romans 6, 5, and Ephesians 2, 6, Philippians 3, 10, and 11, and also Colossians chapter 2, verse 12, and 3, 1. And then lastly, his session. We're identified with him in his session. That's according to Ephesians 2, 6, and Colossians 3, 1. So let's take a little bit of a perusal of these passages. Let's start off at, uh, look at the great, there's great chapters on, the believer's identification with Christ. You got Romans 6, and then you got Colossians 2 and 3. And there's others, you know, uh, uh, there's Ephesians chapter 2 as well. But these, Colossians 2 and 3, and also uh, Romans 6 in particular, are are big passages on teaching this principle. So let's go to Romans 6, 1 first. Romans chapter 6, verse 1. Romans 6, 1. What shall we say then? Are we to remain in sin so that grace may increase? Absolutely not. I'm reading from the Net Bible. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And so he says, we died to sin. Okay. What does he mean by that? Well, he says in verse 3, Or do you not know, something they should know, that as many as were baptized into Christ Jesus, no water here. Baptized there means it's baptizo. It's not used in a literal sense for dipping in water, which it can be used but it actually used is in a figurative sense, and we're, which means we're identified with Christ. 
okay? And he says, we, those who are baptized into Christ or identified with Christ were identified with him in his death, baptized into his death, okay? Therefore, we've been buried with him. If we were, if we were identified with him in his death, we're certainly identified with him in his burial through, the, through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too may live a new life, meaning that our identification with Christ and his death and burial guarantees us a, a resurrection body like Christ. Then he says in verse 5, for, we, if, for if we become united with him in the likeness of his death, and the first class condition is basically saying, for if and let us assume it's true for the sake of argument, that we've been identified with Christ in his death, then we know this is true because this is Christian doctrine, the apostles' teaching. Then he says, here's the inference, the apotheosis. We will certainly also be united in the likeness of his resurrection, guarantee of a resurrection body. We know that our old man, verse 6, was crucified with him because we've been crucified with Christ. He just said that, right? So that the body of sin would no longer dominate us, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For someone who has, di uh, has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we die with Christ, again, if and let's assume it's true for the sake of argument, we die with Christ, and, we, and this is a, 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 what do you call it, a, um, a uh, responsive first-class condition where the audience would be saying, yeah, we know we are. We've died with Christ, because that's Christian doctrine. We believe that we'll also live with them. And then, so that's another resurrection body guarantee. We know that since Christ has been raised from the dead, he is never going to die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, unlimited atonement. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you too, okay, here's the implication for the Christian. So you too, this is how you appropriate by faith the, your union identification with Christ in his crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, session, right here in the Father. We're to consider ourselves, this is an act of faith, consider yourselves the dead to sin because you've died with Christ and been buried with Christ, right? And crucified with Christ but alive to God in Christ Jesus' wife because you've been raised and seated with Christ. Therefore, do not let sin in your, reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires. So in other words, when you come to the temptation of sin, we're supposed to appropriate by faith that union identification with Christ. God looks at us as crucified, died, buried, raised, and seated with Christ, and so we should too. If we died to sin, if we really believe that we have and we have faith in that, then we won't sin because how could a dead man sin? Okay, we have to adopt the view of ourselves that God has of us. So then he says in verse 13, And do not present your members to sin as instruments to be used for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who are alive from the dead, and your members to God as instruments to be used for righteousness. For your sin will have no mastery over you, because you are not under law, but under grace. And then he says in verse, keep going, verse 14, uh, 15, What then shall we sin, because we're not under law, but under grace? Absolutely not. Do you not know that if you present yourselves as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey, either of sin resulting in death or obedience resulting in righteousness? Now he's talking in context to a Christian. And when he says death here, it's temporal spiritual death. It's describing loss of fellowship with God as a death. Okay? A lot of Christians just, and even scholars don't see this and uh, amazingly. So look at verse 17. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves to sin, you obeyed from the heart that pattern of teaching you were entrusted to. And having been freed from sin, because you've identified with Christ in his crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, and session of the writing of the Father, you became enslaved to righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to 
sanctification. He's talking about experiencing yourself, the sanctification there. He's been talking about the positional aspect and the perfective aspect of this sanctification. And as we'll see, uh, you, and, and, and positional took place at your justification, as we'll see. Perfected takes place at the resurrection when you're perfected in a resurrection body. So he's talking about how they can experience that sanctification. He's telling them how to do it. 4 verse 20 says, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free with regards to righteousness. So what benefit did you then reap from those things that you're now ashamed of? For the end of those things is death. And of course, for us, the Christian, he's talking about loss of fellowship if we practice sin. But now, freed from sin, because your identification with Christ, and enslaved to God, you have your benefit leading to sanctification, experiencing it. And the end is experiencing eternal life. So when you're experiencing sanctification, you're experiencing eternal life. When you're experiencing fellowship with God, you're experiencing eternal life. Okay, it's, this, is, this is something we have. We can experience it now. When we sin, we don't experience it. But when we are in fellowship with God and appropriate by faith our union identification with Christ, we're experiencing eternal life, fellowship with God. So then he says in verse 23, For the payoffs of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So in that passage, we could see uh, Paul t- uh, teaching that the Christian is crucified, died, buried, raised with Christ. And now he's also seated with Christ. Uh, let's look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Ephesians 2, 1. And although you were dead in your transgressions and sins, Paul writes, and I'm reading from the Net Bible again, in which you formerly lived according to the pre- the, this world's present path, according to the ruler of the kingdom of the air, Satan, the ruler of the spirit that is now energizing the sons of disobedience, the non-Christian, the unregenerate, among whom, the unregenerate, all of us also formerly lived out our lives in the cravings of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest of the human race. Now listen to me, the flesh there, that's where the sin nature resides. Now there's a lot of people out there, scholars who say that's not the case. And they have all kinds of funky ideas about what this means. The flesh is the, where the sin nature is located. This is clearly pointed out by the book of Genesis, okay? And the virgin birth of Christ, by the way. When Adam sinned and Eve, the judgment was back to the dust of the ground you should go. It's not talking about their souls, the immaterial person. It's immaterial part of a person. It's talking about the physical body, obviously. Okay, That's why Paul calls it a body of sin, a body of death, excuse me. So when he uses body in Romans up to that point, it's always of the physical body. Never is it anything else. It's the physical body. But you get scholars, good ones too, will tell you otherwise. And so, because they, they, they think that uh, by doing that, you're saying, you're teaching Gnosticism. Gnosticism believe that all matter is evil. We're not teaching Gnosticism because Gnosticism is totally different from what Paul's teaching. You know, there's, Paul, uh, the Bible teaches, and Paul's teaching what the Old Testament taught, is that the sin nature resides in the genetic structure of our physical body. Why else do you, how else do you think we die, why we die for? We die because we, we deteriorate because there's a sin nature in our body. That, that tempts us to sin. Paul even says that in Romans 7. You know, it's trying to get attack, it's, it's attacking his mind to, to commit sin. It's self, it craves to be pleased. That's why we get involved in things like sexual sins or drug addiction or anything like that or alcoholism. You know, the, the body craves to, to feel good, you know, to get pleasure. 
So it's localized. And so it's not Gnosticism. You know, Paul's not teaching Gnosticism. This is Bible. This is what the Bible's teaching. So Gnosticism, so it has a, it says that matter. Paul says you can use, this is the difference. Paul's saying you can use, despite the fact that the sin nature is in the genetic structure of your physical body, you could still use the members of those bodies to practice righteousness. Now here's the other thing that supports my interpretation. Why do you think Jesus, why Joseph couldn't impregnate Mary and the Holy Spirit had to? Because the parents passed down the sin nature. And uh, Joseph and Mary had a sin nature. Jesus had to have a human body that was without sin, the sin nature. That's why. So tell me, can somebody can please tell me why he had to have, why couldn't Joseph impregnate Mary? I'll tell you why, because Joseph's passing down the sin nature and Mary would be passing the sin nature down to Jesus and that kind of body. It can't happen, right? Right. So think about those things. Now, let's keep going. I could be on this forever. Look at verse four. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even though we were dead in transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. And then he says, here's our identification with Christ and his resurrection. And now his session, which Paul didn't mention in Romans six. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why did he do this? To demonstrate in the coming ages the surpassing wealth of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So, by positional, when I say at, uh, this, the word saints there in Ephesians 1.1, which you can go back to Ephesians 1.1. Go back to Ephesians 1.1. And that word saints there, where Paul describes, uh, he's writing to the saints who are in Ephesus. The word saints is summarizing the doctrine of sanctification, as I pointed out. And uh, it describes, this word describes all the members of the body of Christ, we said, who have been set apart through the baptism of the Spirit at the moment of conversion or justification and for the purpose of serving God exclusively. It summarizes, this term summarizes the doctrine of sanctification, which is again a technical theological term for the believer who's been set apart through the baptism of the Spirit at the moment of justification, conversion, in order to serve God exclusively, and it's accomplished in three stages. Positional, experiential, and perfective. By positional, as I pointed out, I mean that God views us as crucified, died, buried, raised, and seen with Christ. Why? Because at the moment of conversion, justification, the Spirit placed us in union with Christ through the baptism of the Spirit and identified us with Him in His crucifixion, his death, burial, resurrection, and session of the right hand of the Father. Why do you have to do that? Because those events in Christ's life delivered us from sin and Satan and eternal condemnation and personal sins, physical death, and spiritual death, condemnation from the law. By positional, the positional sanctification of the believer is the entrance into the plan of God for the church age uh, believer resulting in eternal security. It also results in two categories of positional truth. And the first is retroactive positional truth. That means the church age believer's identification with Christ in his death and burial, or in other words, when Christ died, God considers the believer to have died as well. Then there's also current positional truth. That's the church age believer's identification with Christ in his resurrection, ascension, and session at the right hand of the Father. Ephesians 2, chapter 2, verses 4 through 6, and Colossians 3, 1 through 4 for documentation. Or in other words, when Christ was raised and seated at the right hand of the Father, the Father considers the believer to have been raised and seated with Christ as well. So positional sanctification, it means these following things. What Number one, what God has done for us as church-age believers at our justification. Number two, it's how He views us. He doesn't look at you and I as sinners and spiritually dead. He looks as as 
in union with his son, Jesus Christ. He's our righteousness. That's why Paul says, well, I'll show you the passage here. Uh, look at um, 1 Corinthians. Hold your place. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And if I could type, that'd be wonderful. I still can't get to the right verse. <laughs> look at uh, 1 Corinthians. <sighs> look at uh, verse chapter 1, verse 28. We'll start. 1 Corinthians 1, 28. But it says, God chose what is low and despised in the world, that's you and I, what is regarded as nothing, to set aside what is regarded as something, so that no one can boast in his presence. Then he says, he is the reason you have a relationship with Christ Jesus, who became for us, Christ Jesus became what for us? Wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And of course, he's he's quoting a... Um, an Old Testament passage, Jeremiah 9.24, as the, the Net Bible has a note there for it. So uh, we see that the positional sanctification is, number one, what God has done for us at our justification. Number two, it's his viewpoint of us, how he views us. And number three, it sets up the potential to experience sanctification in time. And then lastly, number four, it provides you and I with a guarantee of receiving a resurrection body. And I pointed that out to you in Romans 6 that we just looked at a few moments ago. Now, experiential sanctification, the second stage, which is basically the stage where we're supposed to have fellowship with God. Experiential sanctification is another way to say uh, have fellowship with God. It speaks of fellowship with God from the perspective of experiencing the fact that you're set apart to serve God exclusively. When you're having fellowship with God through obedience to His Word, that's what's happening. So experiential sanctification is the function of the church-age believer's spiritual life and time through obedience to the Father's will, which is revealed by the Spirit through the communication of the Word of God. And experiential sanctification is the post-justification or post-conversion experience of the believer who's in fellowship with God by confessing any known sin to the Father when necessary, followed by obedience to the Father's will, which is revealed by the Spirit through the Word of God, and that maintains, that obedience maintains our fellowship with God, which has been restored through the confession of sin. So experiential sanctification is only a potential. That's why I have it italicized. Experiential sanctification is only a potential because it's contingent upon the church-age believer responding to what God has done for him or her at the moment of their justification, their conversion. So therefore, only believers who are obedient to the Word of God will experience sanctification in time. The believer can experience this victory and deliverance over sin and Satan and his cosmic system by appropriating, by faith, the teaching of the Word of God that he has been, or she has been, crucified, died, buried, raised, and seated with Christ. And this is what Paul did. We just saw that in Romans 6, 11 through 23. You're to consider yourselves dead to this in nature and alive to God. Why? Because you've died with Christ and you're raised with Christ. And Paul talks about this in Colossians. Let's, uh, this experience. Look at Colossians chapter 3. Look at verse 1. Colossians 3, 1. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. Again, I'm reading from the Net Bible. Therefore, if you've been raised with Christ, and again, the first class condition here in Greek means it's a tool of persuasion. It goes like, it, the, 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 um, the gloss is like this. And I translate it like this because this is basically what the, the Greek audience would understand, speaking audience. 
Therefore, if and let us assume it's true for the sake of argument, you've been raised with Christ. It's a responsive first-class condition, we call it, in Greek grammar, meaning the recipients of the letter would know, yeah, because we've been taught this by Epaphras about our position in Christ and our identification with Him. So therefore, we've been raised with Christ, we have. Keep seeking, he says. Here's the inference from that. Keep seeking the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Keep think, thinking about the things above. You're, uh, you're identifying with Christ at the right hand of the Father. Don't be thinking about the things on the earth. So he says, why? Here's the reason. For you have died with Christ and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, and that's at the rapture, then you too will be revealed in glory with him. You'll get a resurrection body. You'll guarantee it. Now look what he does. He has a uh, inference now from the first four verses about positional truth and our identification with Christ in his death, resurrection, and session of the right hand of the Father. So put to death, as a result of this, this is what you can infer, whatever in your nature belongs to the earth, sexual immorality, impurity, sainful passion, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. And because of these things, the wrath of God is coming on the sons of disobedience. So, perfective sanctification, the final stage of our sanctification is the perfection of the church-age believer's spiritual life at the rapture of the church, which is the completion of the plan of God for the church age believer. And uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 53 and 54, Galatians 6, 8, 1 Peter 5, 10, John 6, 4. So perfective sanctification is again the guarantee of a resurrection body and it'll be experienced by every church age believer regardless of their response in time to what God has done for them at their justification. Now all three stages of sanctification refer to the process of conforming the believer into the image of Jesus Christ, which is the Father's plan from eternity past. Romans 8, 28-30. And we know that all things work together for good to, for those who love God, who are called according to His purpose. Because those whom He foreknew, you and I, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of, of His Son. We're looking at predestination in chapter 1 of Ephesians. That His Son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters, you and I. And those He predestined, He also called. That's effectually called. That's talking about the fact that um, the, uh, the God in eternity past um, elected us and this election was manifested in time uh, when we trusted in Jesus Christ that our justification, our justification by faith uh, uh, produced the, 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 the desired result that God had in calling us to uh, inviting us to, uh, to inviting us to uh, experience a, a relationship and a fellowship with him through faith in his son Jesus Christ so the effectual cause means that our justification by faith fulfilled the purpose for which he invited us to enjoy uh, eternal life with him. And the, those he predestined, he also called, and those he called, he also justified, and those he justified, he also glorified. And he's talking about the perfective aspect of our justification, and uh, excuse me, a perfective aspect of our sanctification and salvation, not our justification. Justification is only a one-shot decision. It's not progressive in any sense like sanctification and salvation. It's one, one is not in three stages with justification and that's being taught in error by a lot of so-called teachers and uh, I don't know what they were doing, what some of these guys are doing. I don't know how you can get justification wrong like that, but they are, they are. So let's go now back to Ephesians chapter one. Look at verse one. So, if you look at the uh, NIV, they translate verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to God's holy people, or the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, here's this prepositional phrase, in Ephesus. Uh, 
we saw this in our introduction, in Ephesus in the ESV, the Net Bible has in Ephesus, and they got a nice little note there uh, about it. So therefore, in Ephesians 1.1, Paul starts off by identifying the recipients of the letter as the saints who are living in Ephesus, which as we noted, was a seaport uh, town in the western part of the Roman province of Asia in the first century AD. Um, let me uh, give you a, a map, again, that map of the ancient world. And here's the Roman province of Asia. Let me get my pen going here. And then you hear, you see Ephesus right there. It was a seaport town right off the Aegean Sea. And so these are the seven churches of Asia that are found in Revelation chapters two and three. And first John was directed toward those churches throughout the Roman province of uh, Asia including Ephesus and Laodicea and Colossae, right here, you see. And so um, Ephesians, as we'll see, and pointed out in the introduction, do again so today, it, th this letter was attended for everybody in the Roman province of Asia, not just the ch church at Ephesus. So we see that, uh, therefore, in Ephesians 1.1 again, Paul starts off by identifying the recipients of the letter as the saints who were living in Ephesus, which, as we noted, was a seaport town in the western part of the Roman province of Asia in the first century A.D. However, though the prepositional phrase in, in Ephesus or in Epheso uh, in the Greek indicates that the Ephesian Christian community was the recipients of this letter. However, it was not only intended for them, as we pointed out, but the entire Christian community in the Roman province of Asia. So Paul sent Tychicus with not only Colossians, as we pointed out, but also what we know today is the Ephesian letter from Rome. In fact, Colossians, at the end of Colossians, the Laodicean letter that's mentioned there, many scholars believe that that's the Ephesian epistle. And Martian saw the, this, the, exact same, the exact contents of Ephesians that we have today, he saw it as entitled to the Laodiceans. And I think... That's why uh, I think that uh, this was one of the reasons why we think it's a circular letter. And there's a, a more uh, a more compelling evidence, as we pointed out. So Dr. Dan Wallace has the, uh, the following scenario, and I agree with him. He says he believed that the first stop with the Ephesian letter was at Ephesus, of course. And from there, uh, that was because it was his home base. And from there, it was sent to Laodicea, right down the road, as we saw on the map, which accounts for this letter appearing in Martian's list, as I mentioned to you as the epistle to the Laodiceans. And from Laodicea, a copy of Ephesians would then be brought to Colossae. So the reason why, and we pointed out this in our, in our introduction, the reason why the Ephesian epistle did not appear in some of the best and oldest manuscripts is that this letter was meant for the various churches in the Roman province of Asia. The Net Bible has that note in verse 1, of, when it says, in Ephesus, you'll see a little note. And they say in the note, the earliest and most important manuscripts omit in Ephesus. Then they say, yet the opening line of this epistle makes little sense without the phrase. And then they have some stuff in parentheses, which I'm not going to, uh, we're not going to read. Then they go, uh, what is interesting in Martian's canon list, which speaks of the letter to the Laodiceans among Paul's authentic epistles, this coupled with some internal evidence that the writer did not know his audience personally, as I pointed out to you in my introduction, suggests that Ephesians was an encyclical letter, a circular letter, intended for more than one audience. So I'll stop it there. But that's they put a, they make a, an excellent note there, and there's more to it. You can read it in your own pleasure. So thus, as Dan Wallace noted, and I said this in the introduction, the place in which the name Ephesus appeared was left blank for the names of each of these churches. Here's the Greek text of Ephesians 1.1, okay? Okay, here, here's the phrase, Thelematos uh, Theu, that's by the will of God, and then you have, to the saints who are living in Ephesus, 
Tois Hagiois, Tois Usen, and Epheso. Okay? And that, particularly when he says, you see this word Epheso, there, that, that place, was, that, um, that was left blank. And the, wherever the next le- the town was going to get it, they'd plug in that town, whether it's Laodicea or Colossus or Pergamon or, Pergamon or whatever, or Smyrna, Thyatira. They'd plug that name in. So a lot of these copies would have blanks there, and then they would uh, fill it in. So, as again, as Wallace pointed out, the place in which the name Ephesus appeared was left blank for the names of each of these churches. As Dan Wallace also pointed out, that the churches located in Ephesus would have made most of the copies of this letter because Paul's base of operations, as we pointed out, in this was in this city for nearly three years, according to Acts 18, 19, and 20. So, we see uh, that... Um, that uh, there's no personal greetings, as we pointed out. Uh, there's, uh, there's, there's no personal greetings. We would expect Paul to um, identify or make gre- pass along greetings to people in Ephesus since he was there for three years. But we don't see that. That's huge. Then coupled that with this, uh, this um, manuscript, the best and oldest manuscripts don't contain this phrase, the word Ephesus. Uh, and then also that Martian saw the same exact letter with the title entitled to the Laodiceans. This is all telling us this was a, a, a encyclical letter, or we could say a circular letter that's intended for not only the Ephesian Christian community, but also the various Christian communities in the various cities of the Roman province of Asia, it's very serious cities and towns. Now, Paul employs the adjective pistos, which and if you look at uh, the ESV, you see this phrase, in our faithful in Christ Jesus. So the word faithful, it, you know, most, a lot of time it means, it means faithful, okay? It's an adjective. And so Paul employs the adjective pistos, which is functioning here as a substantive. And it means believers, as I'll point out to you. And I just did. <laughs> but I'm going to give my explanation why it means believers, not faithful. And this word describe, is describing the recipients of this epistle as being sinners who were declared justified by the Father through faith in His one and only Son, Jesus Christ. So, if you look at your ESV, they have the word faithful, and so I believe that means those who are believers, it's a substantive. The word is substantive, there's a substantiver article, which is converting the adjective into a substantive. That happens quite a bit in Greek. And so I believe it should mean, translated, those who are believers. So the ESV, great translations, Faithful they have, and NIV has faithful. Net Bible has faithful as well. So I have to be difficult, right? <laughs> Those who are believers, okay? And I'm going to give my explanation for it. I'm not just going to say this is why it's right. I'm going to explain to my interpretation. So this use of the word, I believe it means believers here. This use of the word also, of the adjective, pistos, as a substantive, meaning believers, also appears in 2 Corinthians 6.15. Okay? Those are that Ephesians 6.15. In fact, let me show you this. And what agreement does Christ have with Belial? Or what does a believer, pistos, share in common with an unbeliever? Notice now, the adjective is not translated there incorrectly, faithful, but believer. There's another passage, 1 Timothy 4.10 and 12. It says, in fact, this is why we work hard and struggle, Timothy, because we have set our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of pistos, believers. That's the substantive use of the adjective pistos. It shouldn't be translated faithful, and that's why they don't translate it here, but it should be translated believers. And then there's another passage in, 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 in uh, 1 Timothy 5, 16 as well. So the articular construction 
of the adjective hagios to the saints not only substantize the word, this word, but also serves as a substantiver, we call it, for the entire clause, usin and epheso kai pistois. There it is in the Greek. A substantiver means it's nominalizing the phrase. It can do this to an adjective, can convert an adjective into a noun. It does this with participles as well, the article. So the Greek article does a lot of stuff. Okay, So the presence of the article before the adjective hagios and not before the adjective pistois indicates that these two words are describing only one group of individuals and not two. Uh, so if you look at the Greek text, it says we have... Um, we have the article here, right? So it says, Tois hagius, tois usin, and epheso kai pistois and Christo ieso. So we see that the the uh, the presence of the article before the adjective hagios and not before the adjective pistois indicates that these two words are describing only one group of individuals and not two. Um, it's the same thing we saw in our study of the pastor teacher in Ephesians four eleven, where that phrase pastors and teachers. There's one art. There's an article before. Apostles, prophets, and evangelists, and pastors, but not before teachers. That's telling us that uh, the the article is telling us there's something different here. Okay, as we pointed out in that passage, teachers are a subset of pastors. The other subset is being uh, the gift of leadership. Romans twelve eight, First Corinthians one with uh, twelve uh, eleven thirty. What is it? Yeah, and so so that's uh so that uh, so teachers. And gifted leadership people, they're under the subset of pastors as well as elders, by the way. So it, so we're not talking about, in that passage, the article tells us that uh, pastors and teachers, there's not, if there was a, a five gifts there you was talking about, you'd have an article before teachers. But it's not there. So that's telling us he's not talking about five different gifts. He's talking about really four. All right? So the same thing's going on here to a certain extent. So therefore... This construction indicates that Paul's presenting a twofold description of the recipients of this epistle. And the word uh, where it says uh, uh, faithful in Christ Jesus, okay, this in Christ Jesus, now here's the, here's the coup de cry here. Follow me closely. The, 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 the word Christos, Christ, is the object of the preposition N, which you see often in Ephesians, okay? And it's often interpreted by expositors and scholars as a marker of intimate association and relationship, and I see that a lot too. So this would indicate that the recipients of the epistle were believers who were intimately associated with Jesus Christ. So that would mean, and we've seen this in other Paul, other, Paul's other writings, therefore this prepositional phrase would be, could be interpreted as describing the recipients of this letter as not only being in union with Jesus Christ and identified with him in his crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, session, and writing of the Father through the baptism of the Spirit at the moment of their justification, but also that they were experiencing fellowship with the Lord. However, it's actually better to interpret the preposition N as functioning as a marker of the object of the believer's faith at justification. And I struggled a long time on this. I looked at this quite a bit and, and follow me closely because this is the coup de grace. If you look, look at the way this preposition is used with the phrase in Christ Jesus and other Paul, other, Paul's other writings, you can tell uh, that this word pisto should be translated believers, uh, not uh, faithful. So this, again, it's better to interpret the preposition N as functioning as a marker of the object of the believer's faith, the justification. And this is first indicated by the fact that the adjective pistos does not mean faithful, describing an attribute of the recipients of this letter, but rather faith, which refers to the recipients of this epistle being declared justified by the Father through faith in His one and only Son, Jesus Christ. So this adjective 
does not speak of their post-justification faith in the gospel, but rather justifying faith, which is indicated by the fact that the articular construction of this word hagios, saints, serves as a substantiver for the whole clause that pistos is in. So this means it's converting into a substantive, the entire clause, because it belongs, namely, and, and, that it belongs to, and that is what? Usin and Epheso Kai Pistos. So notice, there's no, there's a, there's an article before Usin. Okay, we see it here. Here it is. Okay, there's no article anywhere else after that. It's that means that that article is controlling, converting the whole phrase. So that would mean that there's not two different groups of individuals, but two descriptions of this one group of individuals, the believers that he's writing to. So the presence of the article before the adjective Hagios, saints and not before the adjective pistos, indicates that these two words are describing only one group of individuals and not two. So therefore, this construction indicates that Paul's presenting a twofold description of the recipients of this letter. Both descriptions are simply describing the recipients of this letter as Christians or regenerated, regenerated children of God, but from different perspectives. The first describes them as set apart to do God's will exclusively, and the second describes them as those who believe in Jesus Christ as their Savior. Now, the second reason why the preposition N is func functioning as a marker of the object of the Ephesians' faith is that it's employed in this manner in Ephesians 1.15. So, you see this phrase here? Um, we have pistos, okay? So, we have that when it's used in relation to the preposition N, followed by Christo Yesu, we see this in Ephesians 1.15. And there uh, we see that Paul asserts that he did not cease giving thanks to the Father when he heard of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and love for the saints. So if you look at the Net Bible, I'll show it to you. Look at Ephesians 1.15, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus. And so we have here, uh, in the Lord Jesus, okay, and your love for all the saints. So, Paul, the preposition N is functioning as a marker of the object of the Ephesians' faith in, one, in Ephesians 1.15, and therefore that's, uh, so that's support for the fact that I believe it's functioning as a marker of the believer's faith in Ephesians 1.1. So Paul was not only thanking the Father for the fact that they were, the recipients of this letter were justified by faith, but also he was thanking the Father for their post-justification faith in the gospel, which manifested itself in their obedience to the command to love one another. So there, thirdly, we see this prepositional phrase that in Ephesians 1.1, 1, 1, in Christo Iesu, and variations of it, employed with the cognate noun of the adjective pistos, which is pistis, faith. And we see this in Galatians 3.26, Colossians 1.4, and 1 Timothy 1.13. So what I'm using in each of these passages, I'm pointing these things out because in each of these passages, the preposition end is marking the Lord Jesus Christ as the object of the Christian community's faith, the justification. So all this is reasons I've given you major support for why I believe that we should translate pistos as believers in Christ Jesus rather than the faithful in Christ Jesus. So if you look at my translation, from Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by God's will to the saints who are living in Ephesus, specifically to those who are believers in Christ Jesus. So as J. Vernon McGee used to say, if you want to be on the side that's right, Go with my interpretation. <laughs> no, I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm being facetious, I'm being funny. Check it out. Look over the notes, you know, and uh, if you want them, I can send them to you. But, um, you know, that uh, 
that's uh, those are my reasonings for translating uh, pistos as way I do as b- those who are believers rather than faithful. So we see that he says he's basically ident- identifying specifically what he means by the saints who are living in Ephesus. All right. Well, let's pick this up on Thursday. And uh, Thursday we'll be looking at the greeting in verse 2. And as we continue our study of Paul's great epistle to not only the Ephesians, but the various Christian communities throughout the Roman province of Asia. So let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time to study your word. We pray that this lesson be a great blessing to your people, bringing glory to you and your son, Jesus Christ. So it is in his name we pray. Amen.